On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of Dorothy Stratton, a kind and gentle girl whose life was controlled and ultimately cut short by an abusive husband. Welcome to Crime Bar. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello to you. I could hear my heart beating. I could. Or I like, felt like I was breathing so loud. Yeah, just panting. Uh-huh. Um, hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, so we had a uh, very depressing story last week, thanks to me. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear what you've, you've got cooking for me this week. You kind of sound like a pervert. I know. Uh, I immediately, you should see my eyebrows. I look like Jim Carrey slash Brett when he does stories. Oh. The eyebrows and I'm like kind of wiggling my head back and forth. Yes. Like, mm. yeah. Okay. Well, this is a sad story too. It's, we're never going to have a good story. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm doing the story of Dorothy Stratton. Mm, okay. Do you know that? Faintly. Like, I didn't, headline information. I didn't. Basically. Yeah, I didn't. I th- I think that's how kind of what I knew too. I knew it was like a a Playboy playmate that mm-hmm. died or something, but like I didn't know any details any about details. it. It's totally new to me. I was not even a thought in the eighties, so I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't there for any of this. Yeah. So my sources were a few different articles, but mostly I was going off of this amazing Pulitzer Prize winning article by Teresa Carpenter called Death of a Playmate. I reference it a lot and then I read from it directly a few times. But there was also um, a handful of other articles that I'll post on our website. And I also was listening to this really good podcast called Death of a Starlet by Hollywood and Crime. Brett and I listened to it over Christmas and they tell the story so well that I was like, oh, I have to cover it. How can I measure up? Yeah. Well, there's no way I'm not going to do it nearly as well. I'm not even going to pretend that I am. But you'll summarize it really nicely. Yeah. I'm going to try. Um, you know that actor, Josh Lucas? Yes. Like the, the hometown boy from Sweet Home Alabama. Of course. Of course. He narrates in that In podcast. that voice. Yeah. <laughs> he narrates in that voice. In he, that buttery. He uses his own voice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, he, uh... He actually plays the murderer, like, in the podcast. Like, so the podcast is all factual, obviously. Yeah. But they kind of editorialize in this way that makes it sound... Like a reenactment? Um, sort of. Like, they, they fill in little conversations and things like that. And How do they get him to do that? We need to get uh, him on our show. Uh, <laughs> well, I assume they paid him. Yeah. And we do this shit for free, so. Uh, anyways, he was really good, and I just, even though he was playing an awful person I could have just listened to him talk like all day yeah absolutely so I can kiss you anytime I want (laughs) okay now you can proceed with your story (laughs) so Dorothy Stratton was actually born Dorothy Ruth Hogue Stratton on February 28th 1960 
So she's a Pisces. Mm-hmm. Um, her parents, Nellie and Simon, had immigrated to Vancouver, British Columbia, from the Netherlands before she was born. Oh, so she was like an Icelandic beauty. Yes. Um, and then her brother John was born a year after her. And then much later, when Dorothy was eight years old, her sister Louise was born. So while Dorothy is in high school, she gets a part-time job at the local Dairy Queen, which was like a is huge... awesome. Yes. It was like a big like blast from the past for me when I read that. Did you grow up going there regularly? Or no. Or was that just... Okay, never. Just, but so I just went, me. I went all the time in college because we didn't have one in my hometown. So oh, they really? And they had one literally blocks away from my college apartment. So okay. I would frequent it. Okay, good. So you know. Like, oh, I know the glory of oh, DQ. It makes me want to go get one right now. And how cool would you be to have a job at like an ice... I mean... <laughs> I did have a job at an ice cream place and all your friends would use you for scoops of ice cream, but you still feel like you're the shit providing all the goods. Yeah. So during one of her shifts at work, a customer starts hitting on her and he seems like really infatuated with her and he starts coming in regularly to see her when she's working. In a creepy way or like a welcome way? Well, that's what I'll tell you. Okay, cool. (laughs) So Dorothy, like truly she was a gorgeous girl like even when I was searching for a photo of her for this story I did a double take yeah she was a very tall leggy blonde she had that amazing fair faucet hair she had big blue eyes and tan skin and everyone who knew her said she just radiated kindness so people were just drawn to her anyways so it's not like it's unusual for you know a guy to hit on her yeah but this particular customer was like determined to woo her Mm mm-hmm His name was Paul Snyder. He had thick, dark hair, and he wore flashy clothes and jewelry and drove a nice car, and he was 28. Dorothy's only 17. Okay. Oh, you're not bothered by that? No, I am. (laughs) My eyes went, um, okay. You couldn't see the attitude that crossed my face, I guess. You are in another room. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then working at Dairy Queen at that point, this is in the 1970s, she was required to wear her hair in pigtails and she had to wear this little little girl uniform so she basically like every time he saw her she she looked looked 12 extra young yeah um and also when I say that he wore flashy clothes I mean like he was the epitome of 70s style like pimp suits like like red velvet he wore mink coats oh flared jeans snakeskin boots gold chains he oh necklaces he had a thick porn star stash, and he always wore his shirts open enough that you could see his chest hair and the thick diamond-encrusted Star of David necklace that he always wore. So, Ashley, yes. I'm a taken woman. You can't be tempting me like that. I know. So in my humble opinion, he ain't Yum. nothing to get excited over. No, <laughs> oh. no, no. Like, <laughs> I, I saw pictures. Yummy. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Um, but, I mean, I'm also saying this in the year. 2021 very true the 70s styles are so far removed that i i can't see the appeal so yeah. like what do i know maybe he was a total babe then i don't know but we like men in joggers these days and tight urban outfitters tees so yeah. we progressed but i mean he's also like you know what no it's just gross he, i get it he I, was I an awful it. person so i don't feel weird calling him ugly i'm just gonna say i think yeah. he was ugly and he was a shit person so like i'm, I'm fine ugly with inside and out yeah didn't so, deserve dorothy I really want to show you a picture of him because oh no. like listening, I, I, I hadn't seen photos of them before. I kind of knew this story, but I hadn't seen photos of them until after I was listening to that podcast and then I looked them up and I saw, they do a really good job just describing everything. I just yeah. highly recommend this podcast. Um, 
Oh my God, Dorothy is gorgeous. I just Googled her. She yeah, is beautiful. She's stunning. Um, but I'm oh, going to show you this picture of she. I don't know why this isn't sending. Hold on. Oh, I'm Googling Paul Snyder right now. No, no, no. It's a specific. No, don't do it. Okay, sorry. I want you to see this. Oh my God, I just saw one. Oh, wait, is your air drop on? Yeah. There's one, Ash, that I really hope it's this one because it's absolutely brutal. <laughs> I'm going to stop I, looking. Now. I bet you it is. Okay, I just sent it. Oh, my God. And I air dropped it. <laughs> no, I just got it. It's the it's the air gun yes. pointing towards the camera for me. It's, the, it's okay. The describe, gold belt. Just describe the picture. So he looks like he's wearing a snakeskin wrap top. Like, you know how girls wear like those cute yes. cross front wrap tops? Like yes. he's wearing one tucked Literally. into a gold belt. He looks like he shops at Chico's <laughs> and then made it into boys clothing. I know. Like, look at his belt. He has like three massive I don't know what discs. What are those? Like it looks discs? like a wrestling belt. Yeah. Yes, it does. It literally does. Yeah. You know, he kind of reminds me of Ed Norton, but like the oh my gosh, he in should that play photo. him. Yeah, in yeah. that picture, he actually looks like Ed Norton dressed up as Paul Snyder. That's horrific. There's one picture that I just googled, and he's wearing a fur coat open, and he and Dorothy are wearing matching white fedoras. <gasps> yes, that is at the Halloween party where he first meets Hugh Hefner. Oh my god, they're like all in white. Yes. Yeah. She's um, so out of his league. Okay. I know. She's just stunning. Yeah. Continue. So when he saw her for the first time, he supposedly turned to his friend and said, that girl can make me a lot of money. Oh, okay. So not like I'm going to marry that woman one day. Correct. He, um, he ends up getting her number from one of the other employees at Dairy Queen, and he starts calling her on a regular basis, asking her out on dates. And she was initially like kind of put off by this older aggressive guy and she turned him down. But eventually he wore her down. She finally agreed to go on a date with him thinking that if she just went once, maybe he would lay off. And so when he walked through the door to pick her up, Dorothy's mom, Nellie, was pissed. Nellie thought this dude was like nothing but bad news and she was fucking right. Yeah. Paul was a super sleazy club promoter who also worked part-time as a pimp. Yeah. No, I, I could guess by his outfits. Yes. Like a real genuine pimp. He fucking pimped girls out. He looks like, you know, like in the Halloween costume packages where it's yes. like the pimp with like the, he's yeah. where he's literally the epitome of that. And he did this so much. He was actually known around town in Vancouver as the Jewish pimp. Good. Good. Great. Yeah. Um, and that, this is like really where that podcast, um, was especially great. They did such a good job, like really capturing and describing his douchiness. Mm -hmm. Um, like you listen and the whole time you're just like, ew, this dude is so nasty. I know his kind. And you can definitely really understand like how a shy and naive 17 year old girl could be swooped up and manipulated by someone like him. Yeah. But he looks like he smells like like cheap cologne and like body odor and yes. like steakhouses, like the mixture yes. of the three. And like cigarettes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Paul was born April 15th, 1951. So he's in Aries. Uh, he was born in Vancouver, just like Dorothy. His parents divorced when he was really young and he was basically left to fend for himself. He grew up in a rough neighborhood, blah, 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 blah. Nobody cares. He just got like a sob story that yeah. doesn't matter. We don't pity him. No. Uh, and then when he was in seventh grade, 
he decided to call it quits on school. He was like, you know what? I think I'm good. I think I'm going to pimp out women. Yeah, I think I've gotten all I need from here. I'm going to go be a pimp. Be a pimp. (laughs) Um, He was super insecure growing up about like how skinny he was. So when, um, I guess when he gave up on school, Mm -hmm. he got really into bodybuilding. Um, And then as an adult, he was known for being obsessed with his looks and was like really committed to not only having money, but always looking like he had money. And I know for us, like looking at those photos of him, to us, it doesn't look like that. But like from that time, he did seem like he was just had it all. I was like very flashy. Um, He always seemed to be like involved in these like get rich quick schemes Mm -hmm. and he dabbled in lots of grimy forms of work because he's lazy a man that pimps women out you are the epitome of lazy you just want easy money without putting any other any work yours okay just cut that out keep keep going fuck no you can call a pimp lazy go just say what you want to say i just think that if you're going to choose the career of pimping women out, then you are the definition of lazy. You're using women's bodies as a as a form of income, and you just have to sit on the couch and then you get a get a cut of it. Yeah, yeah. No thanks. Yeah. So he, I mean, that was one of the things. Like he also worked sometimes as a club promoter and sometimes a pimp, and then he also worked with cars and like putting car shows on Mm -hmm. or something like that which is not to say being involved with cars is a grimy form of work but if you are fitting that in with pimping and promoting nightclubs it seems a little sleazy yeah uh so this next part i'm reading directly from Teresa's article she said in part quote he finally lost a lot of money to loan sharks and the rounder crowd which i think is a gang in vancouver okay i was gonna say do not know (laughs) um they hung him by his ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel oh he had to leave town snyder split for los angeles where he acquired a gold limousine and worked his (laughs) girls on the fringes of beverly hills he was enamored of hollywood's dated appeal and styled his girls to conform with a 1950s notion of glamour at various times he toyed with the idea of becoming a star or perhaps even a director or producer. He tried to pry his way into powerful circles, but without much success. Unquote. <laughs> now this is me talking. Yeah, okay. So after he realizes that pimping girls out in LA is like not as lucrative as he was expecting, he goes back to Vancouver in 1977 and supposedly he had decided to try to make a clean living. Um, apart from the pimping, most of his business ventures were just shy of being illegal, but not actually crossing that line. And that's probably because he had a real fear of prison. He told some girl once that he was so scared at the idea of going to jail that he'd commit suicide Ooh. before ever finding himself in a cell, which is I would also be terrified of going to jail. So I get it. So anyways, uh, he wines and dines Dorothy. He showers her with all of this flattery and gifts and takes her to nice restaurants. And obviously, like at 17, an older man working so hard to woo you is most likely going to make, you know, dating anyone your age feel childish in comparison. Mm -hmm. But he was also like pushy, like pushy and determined in a way that made it seem like she didn't really have any other choice but to give in to him. Yeah. And at 17, like... I can, I can, you can understand it. Yeah. I can picture looking at a 28 year old 
and he seems so sophisticated and grown up. And I guess telling appeal. you you're beautiful, like yeah, just I get, from an adult. Yeah, I get that appeal. But then as an adult <laughs> who is beyond 28 years old, I look back at a 17 year old and I'm like, oh my God, that's a literal baby. You are a baby. Yeah. I, so I, I can't understand. It's just, it's so predatory. Yeah. Dorothy's parents had split up when she was only three and her dad wasn't really in her life. So she wasn't used mm, to an older male figure. I was going to say a father figure coming in. Yeah. And she wasn't used to that and taking care of her. You know, she grew up with a single mom where like she worked really hard and her, she was very close to her mom her whole life. And so this is not to say that her mom was like um, absent or anything. It was just like the reality of a single parent, you know? Um, so she had, she wasn't used to being taken care of you know, Dorothy wasn't. And experiencing, you know, the luxuries of life. Yes, exactly. It was new and nice. And it isn't like he started out being abusive. Like most abusive relationships, they start out great. and Groomed her. Yeah. The abuse slowly creeps in over time. And it sounds like their relationship was very much like that. Um, I also didn't find any accounts of Paul being like physically abusive. It was more about control and manipulation. And I think that that kind is like it's just it's, as it's dangerous subtle. if it's not. Just, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's just as dangerous. It's just more subtle. Mm-hmm. So they start dating regularly. All the while, Dorothy's mom, Nellie, is like not about it. She doesn't trust or approve of Paul. And she doesn't like that Dorothy sleeps over at his apartment. Dorothy didn't think that she was beautiful. And she didn't have mm-hmm. aspirations to be a star. She just thought she was plain. And she wanted a simple and quiet life in Vancouver. Um, so to have this guy come in and sweep her off her feet, take care of her in ways that she's never experienced before, it was, you know, enthralling to be told she was beautiful and that he believed she could be a movie star. It makes me sad. Good. It is sad. Uh, yeah, it just makes it bums me out. She had only had one boyfriend before Paul, and obviously that was in high school with someone her age. So that was like night and day compared to her new, like, grown up. Her new adult boyfriend? Yeah. Paul was pretty possessive of her early on, but she was naive and she didn't know anything else. So she didn't know that that was unhealthy. She probably thought it was love or something. Yeah. She would just shrug it off as like Paul being very passionate, you know? (laughs) Okay. So when you remember that this guy, you know, was involved in prostitution and other ghost shit, he seemed to decide to take a different approach with Dorothy rather than using her as a quick way to get cash like he normally did with women. He groomed her to pursue something a little bit more high class. He was determined to make her a respected movie star. He encouraged her to consider modeling for photo shoots and explained that becoming a movie star required baby steps and breaking into the industry in smaller ways. So he set up some photo shoots uh, for her with a photographer he knew, and she seemed comfortable and excited doing it a few times. Then one day... He showed her that Playboy was conducting a nationwide search for a new playmate to promote for their 25th anniversary, and he believed that she could be chosen. They just needed to send in nude photos of her. Okay. And there's there's nothing wrong with doing that as long as she's completely, you know, consenting and and feels passionate about that and wants to do it. Yeah, but I think she still was underage. Yes, that's child porn. Yeah, no, I'm not judging like anyone who wants to pose for Playboy, but when it's your a child, older, possessive, controlling boyfriend, boyfriend, yeah, like that's you know the fact that this is how it was introduced to her is just it's unacceptable. Sucks. Yeah. 
So he arranged another photo shoot and she reluctantly agreed to pose naked. The photographer warned Paul that because Dorothy wasn't of legal age, her parents would need to sign a release form allowing the shoot to happen. So Paul forged Nellie's signature. Oh, God. When the day came for the nude shoot, the photographer suggested to Paul that Dorothy might be more comfortable without an audience. So he agreed to leave them alone, but because he was so possessive, he wasn't happy about it. Both Dorothy and the photographer recalled that she was very nervous initially, but by the end of the shoot, she felt very comfortable and was becoming really excited by the idea of submitting her photos to Playboy. In August of 1978, Playboy reached out to let her know that she was selected as one of the finalists and they were planning to fly her to Los Angeles for more test shoots. And this was huge. It's massive. Thousands and thousands of girls had submitted photos for this contest. So to be selected as one of the finalists was it's a an big honor. deal. Yeah, it was a really big deal. This is at the point where Paul tells her he wants to manage her career and he persuades her to agree to approach her career as a team. He wants everything split 50-50 and that they will do everything together. He makes her agree to a verbal lifelong contract that everything they do and earn is owned 50-50, which AKA means everything she does is 50-50 because he's not going to do shit. Mm-mm. Verbal contracts are never a good idea. <laughs> no. Just so you know, if anyone wants my advice. So when he finds out that Playboy is only offering to fly her to Los Angeles and that Paul is not invited or allowed to be present for the shoots, he's none too pleased. But he also recognizes that this is potentially the big break that they were aiming for. So he has to let her go on her own. He, I mean, what is he going to do? He makes her promise to call him every day, multiple times a day. And of course she agrees. She's never been on a plane before and is actually really nervous to fly to a new city and grow, go through this whirlwind experience alone, you know, but she bites the bullet and she goes. She tells her mom that she's going to LA for a modeling job, but she leaves out that it's for Playboy. Other than that, she doesn't tell anyone that she's going. When she arrives in Los Angeles, she falls in love with it. She's picked up in a limousine from the airport. She's whisked through gorgeous, sunny, palm tree-lined neighborhoods and then arrives at the stately entrance to the famous Playboy Mansion. It's like out of a movie. Yeah. The property is big and lush. There's staff there to wait on her hand and foot. The place is crawling with beautiful people. And they even have this full-on zoo where you can play with the animals. And I know that like in our generation, the mansion had more of an icky vibe of like old men mm -hmm. prowling a rundown house and like cornering girls young enough to be their granddaughters. But in the 70s and 80s, like Playboy Enterprises and the mansion were in their heyday and it was just a little bit different. Those old men were younger. Not, I mean, not that that makes it was them the any. same men just same, 30 years later. It's the same men. And then that doesn't make it any less predatory. It's just, you know. But it was like it was men with women their age. And it was an honor to be selected. Yes. And the whole that that's what I was gonna say. The whole brand and culture of Playboy was just different then. Getting an invite to the mansion was a big score. So celebrities were there all the time. And where did you say she was from? Again, I forget. Vancouver. So the difference between not that Vancouver isn't, you know, beautiful itself, but like the star quality of LA when of you're course. driving down the, you know, palm tree yeah. lined streets. Warm, I mean, you can't beat that. Yeah. And LA is just iconic, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was a really, 
exciting and glamorous place to be. And the fact that Dorothy was selected as one of the 16 finalists out of thousands, this whole thing was just exciting. What she and Paul did not realize was just how much she would be working while she was in town. Literally from sunup to sundown, she was whisked from the mansion to photo shoots and back. Playboy's founder, Hugh Hefner, was known for socializing constantly, and he had some social event on the books for each evening. So there actually was like no free time for Dorothy to get to a phone to even call Paul. Plus, she was having a lot of fun. She wasn't really thinking about calling him. But obviously, that doesn't sit well with someone who is used to being in control. So Paul called her constantly. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the flexible, easygoing no. type. All day long, he would call the mansion, the Playboy offices, the studios where Dorothy was shooting, and he could never get through to her. And Playboy employees, like, they were used to dealing with boyfriends and husbands like this. So they made sure to intercept it as much of as much as they could so Dorothy could focus on what she came to do and I mean she was only supposed to be there for like two or three days so getting calls from her pushy boyfriend every hour was like really crazy and it could have ruined her shot of even getting the job people being like we don't want to deal with this psycho of course not worth it yeah before she had flown to LA Paul had warned her that Hef might want to sleep with her and if that happened Paul was cool with it (laughs) Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, he told her she needed to do whatever she needed to do. And that was shocking to her. Like in her mind, she's going there for business and she's in a committed relationship with Paul. So why would she even consider sleeping her way to the top? And why would Paul be okay with her doing so? Well, it's confusing too, because he's expecting her to call all day, every single day, but he's okay with her sleeping with people. Yeah. That literally contradicts itself. I know. Yes, he's not logical. No, he's not. He doesn't seem like a smart man. No. Dorothy later said that um, on that trip, she did meet Hef, but he was a total gentleman. They exchanged pleasantries, but didn't really interact. And he certainly didn't try to sleep with her. So she finishes her work and she flies back to Vancouver. Paul was pissed that she had been radio silent while she was away, especially since she had promised to call multiple times a day. So she had to work really hard to appease him. He asked if she had slept with Hef and she insisted that she didn't, but it was weird to her and it just felt like Paul didn't really believe her. So she ends up not winning the contest and that was a really big blow to her. But Playboy requested that she come back to LA for a few weeks this time to do test shoots for upcoming issues. And so she decided to do it. The same sort of process happens where Paul isn't allowed to join her and she's too busy to call him and it pisses him off. So after being there for a few weeks, she tells him that she misses him. So he comes down that same day. God, (laughs) Like they're literally one of the few times they're on the phone. She says, I miss you. And he arrives that very night. Like normally hung up, went to the airport and he was there in hours. Normally boyfriends are just like, I miss you too. And then they hang up the phone and go to bed. Right. Right. Um, so he gets to LA, he gets a hotel near the mansion and, um, she ends up going over there and she stays with him. Playboy really loved her and she really enjoys working with them. So after she is selected as playmate of the month for the 1979 August issue, she and Paul decide they're going to move to LA permanently so she can pursue her career down there and Paul will work as her manager. They get an apartment together with their roommate on West Clarkson Road in the Rancho Park neighborhood. 
And I didn't know where that was. I have no idea. But actually you do. It's in that area right by the 10 freeway near the Trader Joe's we always used to go oh, to on Pico. Oh, yes. It's right over there. Oh, very familiar. Yeah. So it's actually like you actually know right where. I love that you mapped it and figured that out. I know. I wanted to know where it happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Spoiler. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, But I looked it up because I was just like, I don't even know where the ra- Rancho Park. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Yeah. And I actually know it really well. So anyways. Once they're actually like living down there, Paul realizes how enamored people are with Dorothy and recognizes how quickly she's booking jobs and making connections. And the more friends that she makes, the more Paul feels she's slipping away from him because no one likes Paul. (laughs) Everyone around Dorothy gets bad vibes from him. And then what they experience like firsthand from him is proof that he's a controlling asshole. So... What does Paul do when he feels like he's losing control of his little puppet? Tightens the reins? He proposes. Oh, okay. It was either that or gets pre- gets her pregnant. Oh. He insists that this is the right move for them as a couple, but also for her career. He tells her that no one's going to respect him as her boyfriend, but that the title of husband will benefit her career the most because people will listen to him then. That is not true. That's not how this works. Yeah, I know. You're not in the industry, Paul. Like, it's so frustrating. And Dorothy's like, she's super reluctant. A lot of stuff is changing quickly in her life, and she was kind of beginning to feel like she might be outgrowing Paul. And all of her new friends have all voiced her, you know, their concerns about him and marriage. And it just like, it all feels like it's too much for her. Like, she's starting to open her eyes. I mean, she left her hometown. She probably sees from like a fresh perspective through other people's eyes, not just like her parents or concerned family and things like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So when he realizes how reluctant she is, he starts guilting her. He points out to her that they promised each other they'd be a team and that he is the reason she's in LA getting all of the opportunities she is, which is like not true. She, he might've influenced her going there, but everything that happens after that, that's on her. Yeah. She's the one with star quality. Yeah. He tells her that she owes him. So she accepts that she doesn't tell her family. Okay, so now they're living in LA together. He manipulated her into getting engaged and her career is really starting to take off. So he was really feeling like the big man on campus when he's finally invited to join Dorothy at a Playboy Mansion Halloween party. It's at this party that he meets Hugh Hefner for the first time. They exchange pleasantries, but Paul is determined to talk to Hef about business ventures. And for Hef, he's like, It's like, I'm at a party, dude. Oh, yeah, this is a party. And so he politely chats with him, but eventually Hef gets out of the conversation and tells his security detail that he wants a full background check on Paul. Oh, so he raised some red flags to Hugh. Yes. Interesting. So by many accounts, Dorothy didn't experience that typical situation of a girl coming to the big city with dreams and aspirations and then gets crushed by the industry. It seemed more like she experienced a very quick surge of success and that Hollywood was very taken with her. She didn't have a green card, so Playboy helped keep her in LA by hiring her as a bunny at the Playboy Club in Century City. Hef also hooked her up with business managers and financial advisors when he learned that Paul was working as those things for her. He told her it's always smarter and cleaner to outsource that kind of stuff and not mingle it with personal relationships. So I'm sure you can imagine how Paul felt getting cut out in that way. He felt so insulted probably. Yeah. Replaced. 
Playboy really took Dorothy on as like the poster child of their brand. I mean, they always like groom and adjust their playmates through surgeries and other insane changes to conform to their image. But they really zeroed in on her as a sort of like poster child for them because she, I mean, I don't want to (laughs) like... I don't know how to say this without like promoting like bad, you know, unrealistic like image, Mm -hmm. body image things. But like she was so perfect that they didn't do anything to her. Like they didn't request that she change her nose or her boobs or anything like that. Like they just and I think that that's part of why they really like stuck on to her because she was just like this definition of perfect. Mm -hmm. They also suggested that she change her last name from Hoke Stratton to simply Stratton. And she agreed to do that. Playboy even connected her with a big-time talent agent named David Wilder so that she could pursue acting. And after one coffee meeting, David signed her. He was quoted as saying, A quality like Dorothy Stratton's comes by once in a lifetime. She was exactly what this town likes. A beautiful girl who could act. Almost immediately, she starts getting booked for regular acting jobs, and she continues to do promotional work for Playboy that allows her to travel around for the very first time in her life. And obviously, Playboy is very strict about playmates and the roles that their boyfriends and husbands play in their jobs. It doesn't exactly work for them to send Dorothy out as a sex object to promote their brand and then have her controlling boyfriend like looming in the background when she's posing for photos with fans, you know? Absolutely. I think a lot of, I mean, it's interesting that Paul was using like the whole tactic of no one will respect you if you're just a girlfriend. When in reality with the no, industry- just a boyfriend. With just a boyfriend, sorry. But like in the reality of this industry is appearing single is actually what books you the most jobs because you need to play into people thinking that you are attainable, that they could somehow yeah. get you if into they were in the, the same room with yeah. you. Yeah, like, and they, Paul is a, I mean, obviously he's a fucking idiot, but Playboy knew that. And so they, they tried to hide the relationship for a really long time. At this point, they've been engaged for a few months and she has continually avoided setting a wedding date. Her girlfriends ask her, like, why would she even want to marry him? And she would always shrug and like quietly respond, I owe him. He believed in me. He's the reason I'm even here. But once she's spending more time traveling without him, he gets pushier about getting married. He convinces her to fly to Vegas for an elopement type of wedding and they only invite like a few random people, no one that they're actually like close to. At the wedding reception, someone asks her why her family isn't there and she blushes and says, I haven't told them. Ooh. So basically everyone that actually knows them doesn't approve of this wedding, therefore they can't be invited. So they just have to invite randos. Exactly. Like it was, it's like just random people. Even though Paul was definitely viewing Dorothy as his like primary meal ticket, he did attempt to do some of his own work. And like classic Paul, it was nothing but gross shit. He did stuff like organize and promote wet t-shirt contests, (laughs) wet underwear contests. And then he even collaborated with some club owners to create the famous Chippendales male strip clubs. I'm like still stuck on the wet underwear contest. I know. I've never even heard of that. I have never in my life heard of that. I know. I was like, that is, that that doesn't even sound like it would look good. No, (laughs) it doesn't sound like a good time at all. It's like you peed yourself. Absolutely. Um, He was feeling more secure and confident now that they were married, that, you know, Dorothy wasn't going to go anywhere. He would tell anyone who would listen that she was going to be a household name. She would be like the next Marilyn Monroe. And when she hit it big, 
they'd moved to Bel Air Estates. Like that was on his vision board. Mm -hmm. Dorothy wasn't flashy. And while she was really like falling in love with her new life in California and her career, she wasn't exactly in awe of celebrity or stardom. So Paul being like so obsessed with status and money and befriending celebrities, like that just wasn't something that they had in common. And even after marriage, Paul still reminded her that if she needed, she could sleep with Hugh Hefner. Thanks for the offer, babe. (laughs) I know. And still like Dorothy was like shocked and like grossed out by the idea. She sounds like incredibly sweet and level-headed and a small town girl. Yeah. Very appealing. Yeah. That's what a lot of people described her as. And also like, you know, then she, she was really coming into her own and everyone who worked with her said that she was just wholesome and like genuine. So Teresa Carpenter wrote, did Hefner sleep with Dorothy Stratton? Mansion gossips, who have provided graphic narratives of Hefner's encounters with other playmates, cannot similarly document a tryst with Dorothy. According to Bizarre Code of the Life, which is the sexual society at the mansion, fucking Hefner is a strictly voluntary thing. It never hurts a career, but Hefner, with so much sex at his disposal, would consider it unseemly to apply pressure. Of Stratton, I, I, I agree with that. Of Stratton, Hefner says, quote, There was a friendship between us. It wasn't romantic. This was not a very loose lady. Hefner likes to think of himself as a father figure to Stratton, who, when she decided to marry, came to tell him about it personally. Hef said, She knew I had serious reservations about Snyder. I had sufficient reservations that I had him checked out in terms of a possible police record in Canada. I used the word, and I realized the risk I was taking. I said to her that he had a pimp-like quality about him. <laughs> and I thought that was, like, so interesting. I was going to say take, takes one to know one, but well, he's also not really a pimp. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I have my opinions on Hugh Hefner. Yeah, but I did think that was interesting because Paul literally had been a pimp, yeah. and Hef just didn't know that. Hit the nail on the head. Yeah. So it's announced in April of 1980 that Dorothy was named Playmate of the Year and her issue would be released later that year. This was yet another big deal for her career, but it also came around the same time that she was cast in a movie called They All Laughed that was supposed to be directed by Peter Bogdanovich and also starred Audrey Hepburn and John Ritter. Wow. Yeah. Like she and like That's a big deal. Yeah, but she that's she was getting stuff like that. Like she was getting actual like jobs and working with big time people this job was going to take her away from paul while she filmed for a few weeks in new york and he wanted to come with her obviously but she had recently started to consider divorcing him so she wanted to be away from him and his controlling behavior so she lies and she tells him that the set would be closed to outsiders so there was no point in him going all the way there just to sit in a hotel room for a few weeks all of these new deals and rapid changes and the lack of control he had over his her career, it just made Paul feel again like he was losing his grip on her and he became more demanding and insisted that he have complete control over her finances and business deals going forward. She didn't like that and she reminded him that she had signed with agents and business managers specifically so that they could deal with that stuff for her. So it seems like as soon as she arrives in New York to begin filming, she and Peter start an affair. Maybe it had started during their meetings in L.A. when she got the part. 
or maybe it was just a flirtation. Either way, it's not very relevant when it started or if her connection to him had impacted her blocking Paul from joining her. Um, Peter said that they fell in love fast and hard and were inseparable during their time in New York. Uh The crew on set said that Dorothy was prompt, professional, and a total joy to work with. And even though she was starting an affair with the movie's director... They were both really discreet about it. Not many people knew, and both parties were very professional on set. They probably genuinely just really liked each other. Yeah. Their relationship actually moved so quickly that she checked out of her hotel and moved in with Peter in his suite at the plaza. So, obviously, Paul senses a noticeable difference in his wife whenever he manages to get her on the phone. She's, like, not picking up at her hotel room anymore. <laughs> no, she, like, she wasn't. She was she wasn't reading there. his calls. She was, she was avoiding him, which, you know, confirmed his fears that she was slipping out of his grasp. And then during filming, she did have to go back to L.A. a few times for, like, Playboy promotional stuff. And whenever she was there, she wouldn't stay with him. And uh, she would, like, avoid seeing him. Take a hint, Paul. Yeah. He started to suspect that she was being advised by attorneys on how best to communicate with him. Because when they did talk, it, it seemed, it just seemed like that. So in June of 1980, a year after their Vegas wedding, Paul received a letter from Dorothy that stated they are legally separated, both physically and financially, and that she is planning to seek a divorce. She closed their joint bank accounts and cut them off from accessing any funds that were rightfully hers, which I think was all of it. Yeah. So remember, she has a green card, but if they get a divorce, he has to go back to Canada. So he spends a few weeks trying to like frantically create some business deals of his own, all of which sort of fall flat. You mean his wet underwear contest didn't take off? They didn't take off. <laughs> Paul was convinced that Dorothy was having an affair with Peter and that Peter was the one influencing the divorce and influencing her cutting Paul off. And like, well, duh. Or you just suck, Paul. Like like, everything about you is hateable. But if she's having an affair with someone, obviously she's not going to like, she doesn't want to be with her husband anymore, you know? So Paul hires a private investigator to find proof of the affair because he thinks If there's proof, then he somehow has a chance to fight her for more money. But Dorothy doesn't really try hiding her affair anymore, so it was sort of pointless. She fully moved in with Peter in his mansion in Bel Air Estates. And remember, that was like on his That was on his dream board. (laughs) (laughs) So that was like an extra blow to Paul. And then Dorothy goes on vacation with Peter to London. And they're just like enjoying that honeymoon phase in the beginning of the relationship, you know? She's like having the relationship that she deserved from day one, like an authentic, real relationship. Yeah. She's also created a shield of attorneys and other people to block Paul from reaching her directly. Everyone who interacted with Dorothy during this time where she had left Paul for Peter said she was radiant. She was in love and truly happy in her personal life for probably the first time ever. Unbeknownst to her... Paul had repeatedly tried to get a gun and contemplated going to Peter and Dorothy's to confront and scare Peter. So she doesn't know that. Yeah. And even though she is enjoying her time with Peter, she admitted to her friends that she felt guilty for cutting Paul off the way she had been instructed to do so. And so she reaches out and they talk and they agree to meet for lunch on August 8th, 1980. No. 
so that they could discuss things in person and then hopefully get closure. Paul's friends, however, said that after the phone call, that that completely changed everything for him. He was like elated and he was convinced that he was going to win Dorothy back during that lunch. And that absolutely didn't happen. No. It was like emotional and messy and it ended up resulting in them going back to the apartment so that she could pack up some of her things. Dorothy told him honestly that she was in love with Peter and there was no chance of reconciling. She told him that she wanted to figure out a financial settlement so that they could both move on for good. So obviously, you know how, how much that, take that well. <laughs> pissed him off. Um, like talk about the ultimate bruise on his fragile ego, you know? Mm-hmm. The friends he saw over the next five days recall Paul behaving a little erratically and like making odd remarks about dead playmates and becoming more and more intent on getting a gun. After a few failed attempts, he finally gets a gun after finding one in the classifieds on the evening of August 13th. He casually mentioned to a few people he got it for home protection. He told some friends and specifically his two roommates that Dorothy was planning to come over on Thursday, August 14th at 11.30 a.m. to finalize a settlement agreement. He gave the impression that he was in a good mood and that they were on good terms and he was fine with like finally closing this chapter. So remember, this whole time, Paul is still having Dorothy tailed by a PI. But even though he was like initially hired to like provide proof of an affair, once that was confirmed and Dorothy like left him officially, I don't really understand why he had the PI continue to follow her. Just to monitor her whereabouts, like I control guess. wise. I, I, I guess, but I mean, for what, you know? Um, and Dorothy's new boyfriend, Peter, figured out that she was being tailed and he blew up. But for some reason, Dorothy didn't seem upset by it, which is so weird but after I thought about it, I was like, I think that's a testament to like how used to it. I was to about to say controlling behavior she is like from Paul, you know, um, she kept reassuring her lawyers and others in her life that she and Paul were on good terms and in a good place. And she was totally comfortable meeting with him on August 14th as planned. And on the morning of the 14th, Dorothy met with her business manager at his office where they discussed what to offer Paul. And she was told to simply offer a lump sum rather than alimony. So she gets $1,100 in cash to take with her as a down payment. Tragically, before she left, her manager suggested that rather than meet with Paul again, she should let her lawyers communicate with him going forward. Oh, no, no, no. She smiled and politely declined and said it would be easier if she dealt with Paul directly and insisted that he was being nice. She said, quote, I'd like to remain his friend. That, that honestly, my heart breaks for her. I know. So Paul had two or three roommates at the time, all of whom knew Dorothy. And they, you know, they knew the couple and they knew that she was leaving him and that they were going to work out the details that day. And then the PI, whose name was Mark Goldstein, was still following her around. And he clocked her in as arriving to Paul's at 1230 p.m. I think his role had sort of shifted like at this point. Like I think this was a friend of Paul's too. It wasn't just like he hired some random guy. It was like someone he knew. So I think he had his role had shifted towards trying to catch her doing anything that just might help Paul in his attempts at getting more of the money, um, which was really, really far-fetched to begin with. So I don't really, I think they were just like trying to catch her doing anything wrong, but there wouldn't Sounds have, like they just want to stalk her. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's nothing that she could have done 
to like warrant more money in front of a judge, you know? So Mark and Paul had even considered trying to wire Paul to record his interaction with Dorothy on the 14th on the off chance that he could lead her to make a financial promise that might later hold up in court. But they couldn't get the equipment in time, so they settled for Mark just like waiting outside. And so because Paul's roommates knew about this meeting and just like how sensitive it was, they stayed out of the house to give he and Dorothy some privacy. For the first couple of hours that Dorothy was inside, Mark actually called Paul a couple of times to ask how things were going. And in code, so Dorothy wouldn't catch on, Paul told him each time that everything was going well. Then Mark calls a few more times that afternoon, but Paul stopped answering. Sometime in the late afternoon, Paul's roommate came home. They saw that Dorothy's car was still outside, and they said that everything was quiet inside the house. And when they noticed that Paul's bedroom door was shut, they figured the need for privacy was still important, and they decided to leave again for a few hours. Once they come home and decide to stay put for the evening, they noticed Dorothy's car was still outside, and the bedroom door was still closed. So they assumed that the couple had made up and still needed privacy, so... The roommates all sit down to watch TV for a few hours. The only thing that they thought was off was that Paul's private telephone line was ringing off the hook for hours, but Paul and Dorothy never emerged from the bedroom to pick it up. But again, they just, they're assuming that the couple is like preoccupied. Yeah. You know, so they don't really want to Making up like for cry. last time. Yeah. By 11 p.m., the roommates finally go down and answer the phone. It's the PI Mark Goldstein calling to inquire as to what in the fuck is happening because he had been sitting outside waiting to tell Dorothy home for almost 12 hours at this point. Oh my God. Yes. He probably had a pee so bad. (laughs) The roommate told him that she believed that they were making up in Paul's room. So Mark asked her to go knock on the door and see what was going on. The roommate agreed to and... They later said that as soon as they started to walk towards the door, they had this sinking feeling like something was horribly wrong. They opened the door to find what they described as something out of a horror movie. Blood and brain matter (gasps) covered the walls and the floors, and Dorothy and Paul's nude bodies were found next to each other, both having been killed with a singular shotgun blast in the face. Police believed he raped and murdered her, sodomized her corpse then killed himself with the same shotgun it appeared that dorothy had first spent time in the living room because her purse was there left open and containing the cash that she had brought for paul then it seems like they went to paul's bedroom and whether she was forced to or went willingly like maybe to get more of her things is unclear the lapd believed paul raped and shot her within an hour of her arrival And then approximately one hour after murdering her is when he laid next to her and shot himself. In the Teresa Carpenter article where she interviewed Hugh Hefner, he said, quote, the major reason that I'm, that we're both sitting here, that I wanted to talk about it is because there is still a great tendency for this thing to fall into the classic cliche of small town girl comes to Playboy, comes to Hollywood, life in the fast lane and all that was somehow related to her death. And that is not what actually happened. A very sick guy saw his meal ticket and his connection to power, whatever, et cetera, slipping away. And that is what made him kill her. And honestly, I kind of agree with that. Of course. I mean, this guy would have done something like this regardless of 
if they were in LA or still back in Vancouver, as long as she were to leave him, I think he would have snapped. And if he couldn't have her, no one else could. I totally agree with that. Like, I don't, I don't think it had anything to do with what she was doing or where she was living. Even if she hadn't had an affair, I don't think it even had anything to do with that. I think it was just the fact that she no longer chose him. Yeah. She was, she was proactive and enthusiastic about becoming a movie star. And by all accounts, she was actually a very talented actress. She had a promising career ahead of her and she was trying to leave her piece of shit husband to be with a man that she truly loved. So being brutally raped and murdered had nothing to do with her career or where she was living. This is just, this is a Paul thing. I don't know how anyone would have gathered that. Like that's not something that I would assume or know anyone that would have assumed that, but. So what's a little bit sketchy about this PI Mark is that after the roommates told him what they found in Paul's room around 11 p.m., he went into the house and his first phone call to alert anyone of the murder-suicide was placed over an hour later to Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Mansion. That's a weird first call. Yeah. Then Hef calls Peter Bogdanovich and broke the news to him. And Peter was so hysterical, he needed to be sedated. Why not 911? Like, I feel like that would be... Then the police were called to the scene. So nobody really knows what that was about maybe to manipulate the crime scene to make it seem like Paul wasn't to blame as much or or maybe I don't know or some other weird stuff yeah I I really don't know yeah and then the following day on the afternoon of August 15th local police in Vancouver broke the news to Dorothy's mother Nellie so remember I had mentioned earlier that in the days before the murder when Paul was like acting weird and kept talking about dead playmates yes he had said Did you guys know if a playmate dies, Playboy tries to pull all their photos from publication? And when I read that, I was like, well, duh. It's like certainly a red flag that he was like randomly bringing it up. But of course they were. Or that you'd even know that? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, he was, he was an avid fan of Playboy. Oh, okay. Okay. So it doesn't surprise me that he would know, but it was just like, it didn't surprise me. I was thinking like, of course they would try to do that. Like how disrespectful it would be to publish naked photos of a deceased person. Absolutely. But then I read another quote from that Teresa Carpenter article, which is so, so good. And she says, during the morning hours after Stratton's body was found nude in a West Los Angeles apartment, her face blasted away by a 12 gauge buckshot. Editors scrambled to pull her photos from the upcoming October issue. It could not be done. So they pulled her ethereal blonde image from the cover of the 1981 Playmate calendar and promptly scrapped a Christmas promotion featuring her posed in the buff with Hefner. Other Playmates, of course, have expired violently. Wilhelmina Wrightveld took a massive overdose of barbiturates in 1973. Claudia Jennings, known as Queen of the B-Movies, was crushed to death in her Volkswagen convertible. Both caused grief and chagrin to the self-serious family of playmates whose aura does not admit the possibility of shaving nicks and bladder infections, let alone death. So up until I read that, I had been thinking the whole time that Playboy's attempts to block her photos from being published is more like out of respect and morality. Yeah, I guess that too. But I'm so naive. So like, of course it has to do with like maintaining an image of sex appeal and death isn't sexy. After her death... Peter arranged for the funeral and covered all the costs. Her younger sister, Louise, was only 12 when Dorothy was killed, and Peter stepped in and covered the cost of her education. And then, 
when Louise was 20 years old. Oh, no, no, no. I see where this is going. Exactly the same age as when Dorothy had been with Peter at the time of her death. Louise and Peter marry each other. Of course. And Peter was 49. So Peter's a little creepy as well, huh? Well, Peter said that (laughs) Dorothy introduced him to Louise when she was 11 and a half on New Year's Day in 1980. And to him... She was just his girlfriend's kid sister that he was kind of hoping would go away so he could be alone with his girlfriend. And he said it was years later when she was an adult that they connected and fell in love. He said, quote, it's like a shipwreck. We both ended up hanging on to the same piece of driftwood and we saw that we loved each other. And she's also, Louise has also said some similar things too. So bonded through heartbreak, basically. Yeah, and like, I'm not. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. I'm not trying to judge. I don't know what that was about. And I like, I don't know what to say. I don't want to be judgmental. I have my opinions, but no one needs to hear them. Yeah. They do not matter. No. Um, they actually ended up divorcing after 12 years of marriage. But as of 2019, Peter was still living under the same roof with his ex-wife, Louise, as well as Nellie, Dorothy and Louise's mother. So they're, they're close in their family to this day, I guess. And he said that he... Um, Louise is it for him. He's He doesn't want to be with anyone else for the rest of his life. So, I don't know. Wow. The, there's like a little bit of Brittany Murphy vibes that I keep getting throughout this story. Oh, really? Do you get what I'm saying? Like a little bit of like this like once in a lifetime talent. Beautiful. Like everyone yeah. loves her. And then this boyfriend that isn't as likable mm-hmm. and has this need to control and then kills them oh I see that can I see yeah what you're saying. and then yeah. there's like the weird thing with the mom yeah Brittany Murphy's mom and then the sister I don't know there's like a little bit of a I feel like there's some parallels there yeah after Dorothy's murder Peter blamed Hugh Hefner he believed that Paul actually was okay with the divorce but only a couple of days before the murder he was banned from the Playboy Mansion Peter said that making connections at the mansion was Paul's bread and butter and that when he found out he wasn't welcome there unless he was a guest of Dorothy's, he lost his mind. After Peter and Louise got married, she ended up filing a lawsuit against Hugh Hefner for libel because he claimed that Peter had raped Louise when she was a kid and also that Peter had slept with Dorothy and Louise's mom, Nellie. But the thing is... Hugh Hefner made that claim only after Peter publicly accused Hef of raping Dorothy when she came to the mansion for her initial test shoots. Hef always denied that, um, just like Peter, Nellie, and Louise denied Hef's claims. So I don't know. Messy. It's just, it's messy. Messy. (laughs) It's a hot mess. Peter Bogdanovich released a statement after Dorothy's death that said, Dorothy Stratton was as gifted and intelligent an actress as she was beautiful, and she was very beautiful indeed, in every way imaginable, most particularly in her heart. She and I fell in love during our picture and had planned to be married as soon as her divorce was final. The loss to her mother and father, her sister and brother, to my children, to her friends and to me is larger than we can calculate. But there is no life Dorothy's touch that has not been changed for the better through knowing her, however briefly. Dorothy looked at the world with love and believed that all people were good deep down. She was mistaken, but it is among the most generous and noble errors we can make. 
Dorothy's remains were cremated and she's interned at the Westwood Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles, which is coincidentally the same resting place as Hugh Hefner and Marilyn Monroe. Peter chose a quote from Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms for Dorothy's grave marker. It reads, If people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So of course it kills them. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these things, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. We love you, DR. And that's the tragic story of Dorothy Stratton. That is absolutely awful. I know. I unfortunately saw that coming from... (laughs) Well, I mean, the podcast. The first encounter. It is a murder topic, murder (laughs) podcast. We kind of know what's coming, but it's still, it's still so heartbreaking and like, you know. It's so cliche somehow too, to be a Paul. Yeah, I know. Like that's so predictable. This fragile masculinity and he's. His little ego, his insecurity about being small and being obsessed with bodybuilding and then his outfits. Mm -hmm. And it's just. I know. He could have grown up at some point. And he chose not to. Yeah. Well, you did a really, <laughs> you did a really great job, and I think you probably did just as great of a job as the um, podcast that you listened to. I'm very proud of you. I know I didn't, but you should go listen to it for sure. I would definitely. Well, I'm very interested in the story now. It's really good, even if it's just for like listening to Josh Lucas talk for a little bit. Or I could just watch Sweet Home Alabama on repeat. You could do that. Yeah, <laughs> that would work too. Then I get the visual as well, which is always great. Yeah. Ashley, excellent job. Thank you. And I uh, can't wait to see you next week. I know, me too. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.